I'm delighted that you've made it your decision to be here tonight, and I hope you've brought your Bible with you as we're going to be talking about things that pertain to the Word of God and have to do with serving God and going to heaven in the after a while. If that interests you, then you've come to the right place. We're going to be talking about Bible things. Yesterday, we began a series of four lessons that we entitled simply, Saving the Erring, Saving the Church, Saving Our Families, and Saving Ourselves, a study of church discipline. I didn't say much about the title yesterday, but I want to comment just briefly on the fact that when we look at church discipline, we may think that we are focusing on one of those aspects and not the rest of those, but in church discipline, we're making an effort to save the erring. We're going to talk about that tonight. And at the same time, we're making an effort to save the church, keep the church pure. But at the same time, we're trying to save our families and we're trying to save ourselves. And so church discipline is interesting to us if we're interested in the church, ourselves, our family, and those who may be straying from the Lord. Last, yesterday at 3 o'clock, we looked at the study of for, the forgotten and the misunderstood command. That we often forget this command for various reasons. And it's often misunderstood, and we listed a number of misunderstandings. And tonight we're going to focus on the purpose of withdrawing and from whom do we withdraw. Tomorrow evening, we're going to look at the case at Corinth, and I encourage you before tomorrow night, if you plan to be here with us, to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the entire chapter, and also look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll talk about chapter 2 as well as chapter 7 some, and we'll talk about the case at Corinth tomorrow evening. And then on Wednesday evening, we'll close by talking about how do we treat those disfellowshipped, and does this principle apply to family? And so come back and be with us for the rest of the studies if you can. Yesterday, we spent a good bit of time talking about misunderstanding concerning withdrawal and church discipline. And I want to take a moment this evening before we get into the flow of our study to define withdrawing. What is withdrawing? And let's just assume that you know nothing about that. Maybe you're a new convert. Picture this for a moment and pretend you're a new convert and you hear brethren talk about the church is going to withdraw from so-and-so. And your question is, what is withdrawing? Let's see if we can answer that question. So let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 6. And the text says that I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. We'll study more about that verse here in just a few moments. But I want to look at that word withdraw. Let's talk about what that word means. Thayer, Thayer is a lexicographer who defines the original words, and Thayer says that this word that is translated withdrawal means to bring together. Now, that seems a little strange on the surface. It means to bring together, to contract, to shorten, to diminish, to check, to cause to cease, to pass, to cease to exist, to remove oneself, withdraw oneself, to depart, to abstain from familiar intercourse with one. And he cites our verse, 2 Thessalonians 3 and 6. Now let's go a little bit further. Vaughn says it means to bring together, to gather up, and used of furling sails. In contrast to unfurling sails. Think of a sailboat where you're unfurling the sails. This has to do with furling the sails, gathering them in. Hence, in the middle voice signifies to shrink from a person or a thing, 
2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Withdraw elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 8, 20, where Paul says, avoiding this. That word avoiding, same word as the word withdraw. So here we have the idea, just from the definition of the word, the word withdraw involves some kind of pulling back, some kind of abstaining, some kind of drawing in, some kind of avoiding, and some kind of removal. Something is being removed. And so what I'm learning from this is that what that involves, the details of that, and how that's to be done, the details are given later in the context, and we're going to look at those here in just a moment. So let's stop and just talk for a moment. What is it that's being withdrawn? What is it that we're reining in? It's not our love we're not taking the person with whom there is some disciplinary action taken. We're withdrawing from them. We're not pulling back our love for them. In fact, we're showing them our love. We're not drawing back our concern for them. In fact, we're showing our concern for them. We're not drawing back our friendship with them. We still want to be friends with them. But there are going to be some things we're pulling back. Our understanding that they're faithful is no longer there. Our consideration of them being faithful is no longer there. Our continued association with them on a social basis is no longer there. We're withdrawing something. We're furling in rather than unfurling as the term was used. Now let's look at some parallel statements that would be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We all understand 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, though talking about two different churches, two different circumstances, are essentially talking about the same kind of action. That is disciplinary action or withdrawing, whatever you want to call that. So 1 Corinthians 5 would be parallel in principle to this withdrawing of 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 6. Now we'll get the details of 1 Corinthians 5 tomorrow evening. But let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want you to notice some expressions that would be parallel to withdrawing. Look at verse 2. They are rebuked because they have not taken away from among you that wicked person. So whatever withdrawing involves, it involves taking away that person. Now that's not physically, literally taking them away, ending their life. But we're taking them from our fellowship. In other words, we're not extending fellowship. We're not recognizing them any longer as faithful unto God. There's something we're pulling back. We'll say more about that in a moment. Verse 5 says, deliver such a one to Satan. That's what withdrawal involves. Delivering them unto Satan. Verse 7 says, purge out the old leaven. That's what we're doing in withdrawing. Verse 13 ends the chapter by saying, put away from yourselves that evil person. That's a parallel phrase to the idea of withdrawing. Now, I want to suggest to you that this action takes place on the part of the church and individuals as well. So if the church here at Eastside withdraws from Brother X, whoever that may be, Sister X, there is some action the church as a whole takes, but then there is action you as an individual is going to take. What is that? There is some church action. There is something that takes place in public. That is, there's something that takes place in the assembly. While you're at 1 Corinthians 5, look at verse 4. He said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together. That is a statement referring to the assembly. 2 Corinthians 2 and in verse 6 says, this 
punishment was inflicted by the majority, that is by the whole, by the church. So there is something that takes place when we're gathered together. And so again, let's assume for illustration, you are a new convert, you've never seen this, you don't know what it's like, you're going to witness something take place in the assembly when we withdraw from someone next week or whenever that may be. Some form of announcement, some form of notation, some form of marking is going to take place in the assembly. So there is something the church as a whole does. There is also something that we as individuals do. There is a social restriction not keeping company with, and we'll define that in a moment. We'll reserve that for, for a few moments. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says, do not keep company with him. And so there is I as an individual, I'm going to be responsible something that now this friend that I have socialized with, that I used to go out to eat with, I used to play golf with, we used to vacation together, that's not going to happen anymore. Now I'm beginning to see part of what is being withdrawn, what is being furled in. I'm beginning to see that. Now there are some instructions found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you've left that text, let's go back. We're still trying to define what's involved in withdrawing. I see the parallel account, we know what the word means, and I see parallel accounts. And furthermore, there is action on the part of the church and the part of the individual. What are some instructions in the text that may give me some insight? Let's see what they are. Verse 14 says that if you withdraw, go back to verse 6, so that we have the context that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Verse 14 says we are to note that person. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. I like what Lipscomb said at this point in commentary on 2 Thessalonians. He said, the first step is to discriminate between those who obeyed and those who did not. The second is to note him as disobedient. That's exactly what's being done. So what's involved in withdrawing? Something is done publicly and noting or marking or identifying one who is different from all the rest in that they are persisting in sin and not turning back, like this fornicator in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. M.R. Vincent comments, he's not a commentator, but defining the word says it literally means to set a mark on. Now that doesn't mean that we go to the brother and we put a mark on him literally with a pen or with a marker, but we are marking them that is, the nature of the mark is indicated by the very next clause. Let's read verse 14. That note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. So we are identifying the person that is being withdrawn from for the purpose that we might withdraw from them. Verse 6. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4 said something we've already mentioned is done within the assembly, noting and identifying so that all within the congregation knows that. But here's a second instruction. Verse 14 says, do not keep company with him. That same expression is used in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, verse 11, that I've written to you before not to keep company with them. The word literally means to mix up together with. It's the idea of socializing. If someone said, and we may not use this expression as much as perhaps in years past, if you describe someone as a good mixer, what you're saying, they socialize well with others. Sometimes in hiring a preacher, somebody says, well, we want one that's a good mixer. What do you mean? He mixes concrete, 
mixes cake batter. What do you mean? No. What it's saying is he socializes well. He interacts with people. He doesn't just do his work in the pulpit well. We want him to interact and socialize with people. It literally means to mix up together with, to associate, to socialize. And the text says don't do that now that he's been marked and identified as one who's persisting in sin. Furthermore, the reason for that, look at verse 15 of our text, or verse 14, that he may be ashamed. We're not doing that so that we're trying to hurt his feelings. We're doing that so that he comes to repentance. He's ashamed of the sin that he's committed. Does that ever work? It certainly does. It did at Corinth. And you and I both have witnessed that in person in our own day and time. Now, here's another instruction concerning what's involved in withdrawing. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's something that I continue to do as an individual. So it's not washing my hands. Once and done, I'm washing my hands with him. I don't have anything to do with him at all anymore, but I do have some contact. I'm not socializing with him, but I'm going to continue to admonish him to make correction in his life. Now, that's what's involved in withdrawing. With that in mind, I want us to turn to our question for the night, and that is the purpose of withdrawing and from whom should we withdraw. It is imperative that we understand, first, the purpose, and secondly, those from whom we are to withdraw. When we understand and see the purpose as revealed in the Scriptures, we see its importance. We understand why it's so important. I want to suggest that much of the controversy and much of the confusion is due to not understanding those principles where people don't understand the purpose and they don't understand from whom we should withdraw. So those are our two points for this evening. Let's start with the first. Let's raise the question concerning what is the purpose of doing this. You say, now I'm beginning to get an idea. Let's assume again that you are a new convert, you've never witnessed this, you don't know what it's like, and you're just learning what withdrawal is all about. And now your question is, I understand the proceed. I understand what you just showed from 2 Thessalonians 3. I don't understand why we do it though. What's the purpose of that? I want to suggest to you that God has a purpose for everything he commands us to do. Everything he commands us to do, he has a purpose for it. And if it is a command to withdraw from the disorderly, and it is, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, then it has some important purpose. Whether I ever see it or not, it must have some important purpose. So when I see that purpose, then I better appreciate that. I love this quotation from Wayne Jackson. He said, the scriptures do suggest. However, that discipline has both a corrective and a protective function. I quote that because I want to borrow his terminology. I like that terminology. It has both a corrective and a protective function. First of all, withdrawing has a corrective function. In other words, it's an effort to save the erring. Now let me footnote and make this point. And that is that that only takes place after repeated, repeated efforts to restore the erring. One is overtaken in the fall, Galatians 6, 1, you which are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Same principle in James chapter 5. Quite often, when we as elders may go to someone that is in sin and we start talking to them, one of the first questions they'll ask, are you planning on withdrawing from me? And my answer is, that's not even on our radar. We haven't even discussed that. The elders haven't even met about that. We haven't even talked about withdrawing. That's not even in our discussion yet. What we come to talk to you about is trying to get you to correct your sin. So this comes long after 
we have made repeated efforts to try to bring the person to, to correction. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says when we do reach this point, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 5, and we'll see more about this tomorrow evening as we look at the context and things going on there. But look at verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul, why, why are we taking this action? You say we hadn't done what we should have done and you're telling us we should do more. Why are we, why are we doing that? You're doing it that you might save the soul of this, this sinner, the fornicator. We want him to come to repentance. So it has a corrective function. Now let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I do not apologize at all that we're repeating some passages over and over. Yesterday we saw it is a forgotten command. I hope that when I get through, you will not forget the command. You'll always remember these passages. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. You do not, uh, verse 14 said, Do not keep company with him that he might be ashamed. I'm trying to bring him to repentance. So it has this corrective function, that he might be ashamed. And notice verse 15, you admonish him. I raise the question, why am I admonishing him? Because I'm trying to bring him to repentance. The admonishing him is showing that it has this corrective function. Now let's go to another passage. It's not dealing with church withdrawal per se, though it does lace in with it quite well. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. This is dealing with a personal offense where someone has sinned against you. You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. But if he won't hear, then you take with you one or two more that at the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglects to hear them, then tell it to the church. What I want you to see that all three approaches, whether it's you by yourself taking one or two more or you tell it to the church, the action is designed to gain your brother. You're not trying to tell him off. You're not giving him what for. You're trying to gain your brother. You want to bring him to repentance. There is the corrective function. We're trying to get some correction. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, concerning Hymenaeus and Alexander. He said, I've delivered unto Satan. Why did you do that, Paul? That they may learn not to blaspheme. I want them to learn to do the things right rather than blaspheme as they have done in the past. Now then, not only does it have the corrective function, but there is the protective function. Church discipline has a protective function, and that is we're trying to save others as well as save the erring. Now what do we mean by that? There is an effort here to keep the church pure. God wants the church to be pure. We have a number of evidences of that in Ephesians chapter 5, that he washed and cleansed it. You remember that in Ephesians chapter 5, that he might sanctify and cleanse the church? So God wanted the church to be cleansed. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, in becoming children of God, he made us pure. He made us pure in order that we might become children of God. We're sanctified through the truth. We're purified by the truth. 2 Corinthians 6 and in verse 14 said that we are to come out from among them, verse 17 said, and be ye separate. Notice in verse 14 is a verse we often quote in the wrong context. We put it in the context of marriage. But do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. In other words, don't pull in the same load of sin with unbelievers. Don't do what everybody else is doing. Now verse 17 said, come out from a world and be separate. So God wants his people to be pure. And on and on we could go citing passages. But now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again. 
Paul told the church here at Corinth they were to take this action toward this brother. They had failed to do so. Why were they to do that? Well, we've already seen to gain the brother. Now look at verses 6 and 7. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We'll come back to that in a moment. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's the idea of the church. We want the church to be pure. Rather than having leaven corrupting the church, we want to purify it by taking out the old leaven that you might be a new lump. Now look at verse 13. He said, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. As long as he's persisting in sin, remove him from that and no longer have fellowship with him. And so it's an effort to try to keep the church pure. But here's another thing concerning purity of the church. It causes others to learn and to fear. Just like when you have a number of children and you discipline one child for misbehaving and another one's doing the same thing, they take note of that real quick, don't they? They recognize, you know what, if I do the same thing and I get caught doing the same thing my brother or sister got caught with, I'm going to face the same punishment. Well, that same principle is true. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And I recognize as you're turning to Deuteronomy 21, this is not talking about New Testament church withdrawal. I got that. But there is a principle involved that when one is disciplined, whatever that discipline may be, minor or severe, others take note of that. That's what I want you to see. So here's the principle, when one faces consequence, others learn and others fear. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning at verse 18, this is dealing with a rebellious son. And if a man has a stubborn or rebellious son that will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, he will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city at the gate of the city. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him, with, uh, stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil person from among you. Now notice the last phrase. And all Israel shall hear and fear. Here's the rebellious son. And when he sees... When others see that rebellious son was stoned to death because he was rebellious and would not listen, don't you know some other rebellious sons might get straightened up real quick? I don't want that to happen to me. And the same thing happens in the church of the Lord. Here is someone who maybe is, is living in sin and they are withdrawn from others who are doing the same thing but hasn't been revealed yet. They better get their lives straightened up. And they'll take note of that. You say that hadn't happened. It has happened time and time and time again. Let's go to Acts chapter 5. Others within the church are going to take note of that. That is, others within the church are going to take note of that disciplinary action, the consequence that goes with sin. Look at Acts chapter 5. You remember the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Here were members of the church. They lied and they suffered death because of their lies. Now what took place there? Or the consequence is what I'm asking about. Look at verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church. Don't you know somebody else, if they were thinking about lying, even beginning to think, you know what, I kind of think Ananias and Sapphira kept some money back for their benefit and lied about it, and I'm thinking about doing the same thing. And as soon as they saw them drop dead, you better bet they thought, I'm not going to do that at all. They learned a lesson from it. The text says they learned and they feared. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in verse 20. This is talking about elders that sin. Don't just accept an accusation against an elder. 
except by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But those that sin, you rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest may fear. In other words, here's someone who's in sin. I have evidence of that. I have witnesses to that effect. And I can well establish he's a sinner. And when that's well established and he's dealt with, you better bet everybody else is going to take heed to that. That's the way it works. It's the way God wanted it to work. So it causes others to learn from that and cause others to fear. Let me give you a footnote here of evidence of that. There are churches, I'm sure all through Athens, like it is in Middle Tennessee where I live, that have a reputation for dealing sternly with sin. There are others who have a reputation for being softer. And those who want to commit those sins, they know where to go. They know the churches to sniff out and they know exactly where they'll go because they know they can commit those sins there and never be dealt with. But in other places they won't attend because they know it'll be dealt with. People take heed and they fear. The text tells us so. But not only would those of the world do so, but others, I mean in the church, but the world takes heed to that too. Several years ago, I was working with someone who had not yet obeyed the gospel and had her nearly to the point of obeying the gospel, thought she'd be baptized within the next week or two, and she was coming out of the denomination, and I thought she was beginning to grasp, and maybe she's going to obey the gospel. I was not serving as an elder at the time, and she showed up one Sunday, and it happened to be a Sunday that the elders had not told me. They were withdrawing from five people that day. And I thought, oh my, she's, she, she's not going to understand this. This is going to drive her away. This is, going to, this is going to end the study. Not that I was against the withdrawal. I was for that. But I thought, she won't get this. She won't understand this. Because we called them by name and talked about their sin and withdrew from them that morning. And at the very next Bible study, I was ready to defend that and say, well, we had to do what the Lord wants us to do. And she was so excited. She said, I'm finally glad to see a church that deals with sin. I'm finally glad to find a church that does that. People take note, even of the world, of what's going on when we deal with sin. And I want to suggest to you that when we do not practice church discipline, we're going to have many problems. Churches that practice discipline as they should, we have enough problems as it is. We still have fornicators to deal with. We still have worldliness to deal with. We still have lack of attendance to deal with. But you can rest assured if we don't practice church discipline, they're going to be the erring that persists in sin and they're going to be lost. Had the church at Corinth continued in their condition, the fornicator would have been lost. He would have been restored. We'll see more evidence of that tomorrow night. When we don't practice church discipline, the church is corrupt. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5. He said, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little corruption is going to corrupt the whole church. And so the church is corrupt. And the influence of preaching is lessened and neutralized because the teaching has no teeth in it. And what I mean by that, we can stand up all day and talk about dancing is a sin. But if the brethren as a whole and the elders won't stand behind that and deal with those who are dancing, the preaching has no teeth in it, I want to tell you. Same thing with the other form, immodesty, divorce and remarriage. We can preach all day that divorce and remarriage, here's what the New Testament teaches, if you divorce contrary to the will of God, you're in sin. But if we're not willing to stand behind that and deal with those who violate that principle, our preaching and teaching has no teeth in it. And people just let it go right over their head. Problems are created when we don't practice church discipline. 
There's moral decline. There's spiritual decline. It's indicated that a little leaven leavens a whole lot. And furthermore, God's not pleased because we're violating the commands of God. And so there is a purpose for withdrawing. But secondly, from whom should we withdraw? From whom should we withdraw? Let me issue a word of caution here. And please understand this word of caution. There is a difference, please be advised, in a babe in Christ and a Christian that has had time to grow and to mature. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about for when the time you ought to be teachers. You've had time to grow and to mature and develop. There's a big difference in that person and one who's a babe in Christ who's just been baptized and may know little about the Christian life, but they know something enough that they can try to live, but they're still bubbling along here and, and fumbling along trying to feel their way through. There's a big difference. We'll see that in 1 Thessalonians 5 in a moment. This is an area wherein we need long-suffering and patience. I won't read all of these passages. Go like Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 3, Galatians 5. All these tell us to be patient and long-suffering. God is long-suffering, Psalm 86. That doesn't mean we ignore the sin, but it does mean we exhaust every means of seeking to restore before we reach the point of withdrawal. And perhaps there are people who think that some of us who serve as elders have got our, our finger on the trigger. We're just waiting for someone to do wrong, and we're ready to pull the trigger and withdraw. I want to tell you, I don't know about these elders, but at home, we take that finger off and probably need to put it on quicker than we often do because we're trying to be patient and long-suffering as long as we can before we ever reach the point we have to take that action. But I want you to see that distinction. Let's list some general rules about those from whom we should withdraw. Starts, first of all, with... The person is a Christian. At least they're supposed to be. Let's look at evidence in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 5 says that there is among you. He's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. This wasn't somebody in the community, non-Christian. He's going to make that distinction later in the context. But it was someone among them. Secondly, verse 6 and 7 says there is leaven within the lump. The lump would be the church. So this is somebody within that local church. Furthermore, verse 10 says they're not of the world. He said, I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of the world. When I wrote to you telling you not to keep company and to withdraw, I, I wasn't writing about you do that with the people of the world. I'm talking about those within the church. In fact, he says, I'm, what I'm talking about, I've written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. It's a Christian. In fact, in verse 12, he said, we are to judge those within. Talking about in the church, not in the world. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 says, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. And don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother, verse 15. So we have an abundant evidence. We're talking about we're dealing with a Christian. So I'm not withdrawing from my neighbor who's a non-Christian. I'm not withdrawing from my child who's not a Christian. I'm withdrawing from a brother. That's the first general rule. Second, it's someone within the local church. Let's start with the principle each local church 
is autonomous. By that, they're self-governing. The elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, Acts 20 and verse 28 say the same thing. That the elders have the oversight of the church of God or the flock of God among them. The elders of the church here at Eastside have the oversight of the church at Eastside and have the oversight of no other church. Have no authority over any other church. I'm serving as one of the elders in the church in Shelbyville, but I have no oversight of this church. We have no oversight of this church. Each church is autonomous, self-governing. That being the case, the fornicator at Corinth was in the church at Corinth. That church at Corinth was addressed to deal with him. It wasn't a letter sent to Ephesus to deal with the fornicator at Corinth. The letter was sent to Corinth to deal with the fornicator at Corinth. It was somebody within that church. So the elders where I am a member are not going to withdraw from one of the members here. We don't know what's going on here. You're autonomous. These elders know what's going on here. The elders here don't send a letter to one of our members and withdraw from them. That's not their jurisdiction. 1 Peter chapter 5. The fornicator was in the church at Corinth, and that church was instructed to put him away. Here's another simple rule to be consistent. The Bible abundantly warns us not to show partiality. There is no partiality with God. Be no respecter of persons. And on and on we could cite passages of showing partiality, being contrary to the will of God. God said, don't do that. So if I'm willing to withdraw from someone who's not in my circle of friends, but someone within, within my circle of friends, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm showing partiality. So we need to be consistent. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 says, withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly. That's this brother, that's that brother. It's one close to me and one that's not close to me. One that's my friend, one that's not my friend. One that's in my family and one that's not in my family. To be consistent. Let me back up and, and put a footnote here about being consistent. Yesterday I mentioned a number of lawsuits concerning um, that happened back in the 80s and 90s. Some of you are old enough to remember all that fiasco uh, among churches of Christ years ago. And I knew an attorney that involved in defending each one of those, but he was an advisor to the groups of attorneys that were in every one of those cases. And his advice was, in every single case where the court awarded something to the, the one suing the church, the church was always inconsistent. Withdrawal from one for fornication, but not someone else for the cause of fornication. Withdrawal from one for forsaking the assembly, but not others who forsook the assembly. And his basic piece of advice would be, if you just do what the New Testament says and practice discipline consistently, you stay out of court. That's a good rule of advice. Let's talk about the disorderly now. We're answering the question, from whom should we withdraw? Well, first of all, it's a Christian, but it's one who walks disorderly. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 6. Let's define this word. The text says, we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you walk that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Whatever that word is, whatever that word involves, it's one who walks disorderly. What is that word disorderly? We're not going to take the time to read every word of every definition. Look at the highlighted parts. This is the adjective defined by vines. He says it signifies not keeping order, especially a military term. 
denoting not keeping rank, insubordinate. So here is one that's insubordinate, not keeping rank. They're not keeping orders. It's a military term. So the adverb means like soldiers not keeping rank. He said the verb means to be out of rank, out of one's place, undisciplined to behave disorderly in a military sense to break rank. Anyone who's been in the military recognizes that if one in authority over you gives orders and you don't follow orders, you are disorderly. It's a military term. Not following orders. Well, who gives us orders? It's the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us orders. And when one's not following the orders of Christ, they are disorderly. There says it means disorderly, out of ranks, often so of soldiers, deviating from the prescribed order or rule. That's the idea of disorderly. Now, Barnes, he's a commentator, not a lexicographer. He says this disorderly walk denotes a conduct that is in a way contrary to the rules of Christ. The proper idea of the word here is that of soldiers who do not keep their ranks, who are regardless of orders. And then those who are irregular in any way, the word would include any violation of the rules of Christ on any subject. Well, that's not true because Barnes said it. It's true because that fits the pattern of the Word of God. Now, let's talk about this word disorderly found in other places. That same word translated disorderly is translated unruly. So open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you to see a point. Chapter 5, 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Same word as disorderly. And so in your mind, you can erase that word unruly and put disorderly. Same word, same word. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Here's what I want you to see. That disorderly and unruly is the same word. But those who are unruly or disorderly are not the same class of people as those who are faint-hearted, the discouraged, and those who are weak. Do you see the point? So when the Bible says, I'm to withdraw from those who walk disorderly, continue to walk disorderly, not just once were disorderly, but they walk disorderly. We'll say more about that in a moment. It is not saying every person who shows a sense of weakness, I'm ready to withdraw from them. And everyone who is discouraged, and, and maybe they don't always do what they should because they are discouraged, we're ready to withdraw from them. That's not what the text is talking about. What I'm trying to get you to see is we're defining disorderly. That's not the same people as those who may be discouraged or those who may be weak. They may become disorderly. But because they're weak and they're faint-hearted doesn't mean they are disorderly. Let's look at some things in the context of 2 Thessalonians 3 that give us some insight. We're still trying to define disorderly. Verse 6 says, he walks disorderly. Withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. That describes a continuance and a persistence in this disorderly conduct. Do you remember the Bible describes Job as one who shunned evil? That doesn't mean he never did evil. Shunning evil gives the idea if he ever did evil, he turned away from it quickly. He said something he shouldn't, he, he, he repents of that. He did something he shouldn't, he repents of that. He didn't persist in sin. Didn't mean he never sinned. This means he turned from it when he saw he did wrong. 
One who sees his sin and makes correction quickly or they step outside the light of God and they come back, they are not walking disorderly. This is one who continues and persists in that as the fornicator at Corinth. Look at verse 6. He's not walking according to the tradition of the apostles. And furthermore, he does not obey the word of this epistle. So who are we talking about, the one who disordered? He's not following the direction of God. He's not following the scriptures of God. He's persisting in that life and is not turning back from it. We've made an effort to talk to him and he doesn't return. We've made another effort and he doesn't return. We make more effort and he doesn't return. He's persisting in that sin. Now we have to withdraw as per the text. Now let's listen people specifically from whom we withdraw. And here's another word of caution. The specifics given that we're about to list are not exhaustive. You say, why is it not exhaustive? Because the word disorderly is a broader term than this list includes. We've already defined disorderly as, as walking out of step, out of rank, contrary to the revealed will of the apostles, the tradition of the apostles. They're not following the words of the epistles. There may be other violations than the one we're about to list. We're just going to list some that are specifically mentioned. For example, we all know that 1 Corinthians 5 says we withdraw from one who is a continued and persistent fornicator. This man had his father's wife. We'll talk about his circumstance later. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. That's not all that's dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that is fornication. He mentions the idea of one, if any brother be covetous. A brother, one who is named a brother, is a fornicator, or if he's covetous, he's to be withdrawn from. I'll have to admit, I've never known of a church to withdraw from someone because they were covetous. Maybe so, because I've known of some who've been withdrawn from because they were thieves. Maybe that was covetous. But he also mentions an idolatry. Idolatry can come in various forms. Covetousness is idolatry, by the way. Verse 11 also mentions a reviler, one who is an agitator, one who is fighting, one who bothers other people. One who is a drunkard, verse 11, one who is an extortioner, verse 11. 2 Thessalonians 3 talks about those who are lazy and those who are busybodies. They withdraw from someone who is a busybody stirring trouble in the church because they're running their mouth. Others will take heed, I want to tell you. They had that problem at Thessalonica. And then we might add to that one who sins against another and he doesn't repent. That's the point of Matthew chapter 18. You go and tell him his fault and he doesn't hear them. Go take with you one or two more and he doesn't hear them. Then tell it to the church. And if he neglects to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen and a publican. Finally, action is taken by the whole church. Here is one who sinned against another. Teachers of error are to be dealt with. Mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine and avoid them, the text says. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The man who is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. So someone rises up teaching a false doctrine. He's not a fornicator. He's not covetous. not a thief. He's not a drunkard. But he's teaching error, disturbing the church. What do you do? You withdraw from him. After the first and second admonition, and I say, et cetera, because there's more besides those that could be found within our text. So what have we seen in our study tonight? We tried to define what withdrawing is, what it involves, but more so we've tried to focus on the purpose of withdrawing. Why do we do it? 
And from whom should we withdraw? Tomorrow evening we'll be talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the case at Corinth. Talk about some of the background there. What's going on? What happened there? What's going on with this brother? What did the church fail to do? What were they told to do? How did it work? How do we know it worked? We'll talk about some of those questions in our study tomorrow night. There may be one more present this evening who's not a Christian, not a child of God. Would you come this evening believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?